to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Welcome to Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I'm Katrina Rowe, a Sydney-based broadcaster, author and storyteller. So many of us in Australia don't know our own history, including me. Many of the stories of Australia's heroes, pioneers and visionaries have been buried. We don't know their stories. We don't even know their names. In this podcast, we want to dig up some of their stories and light up their names, make them visible again. Something these people all have in common is that their faith inspired them to work for the greater good and put others before themselves. Many of them have been long forgotten, even though their contribution lives on. So as you hear their stories, as we learn about their choices, we hope you'll be inspired to keep the faith and join in the work of making the invisible visible. In this episode, we meet an Aboriginal activist who helped to birth the civil rights movement in Australia. You know, he was a man of force, a man of courage. Um, Somebody described him as standing tall and strong and calm, strong in in his Presbyterian faith that strengthened his love for his people. And that's a good description of him. In Australia, we've neglected him, you know, and the Christian world has neglected him too. And I think it's time his story was told as strongly as we can. Considered to be Australia's Martin Luther King, He passionately believed that all men and women were equal before God. Dr. Paul Rowe is the Outback historian. He's a storyteller from the Back of Burke who wants to help us understand our shared heritage. He is also my father-in-law. Our first conversation was about the Reverend John Gribble, who started the Warren Gester Mission in Darlington Point, the little town I grew up in. Today, we're looking at a civil rights activist who started life at that very mission. Bill Ferguson is considered to be Australia's Martin Luther King. Today, if you visit the town of Dubbo in Western New South Wales, you can see a statue of this remarkable man right in the centre of town. G'day, Paul. G'day, Katrina. How are you doing? Good. Can you tell us a little bit about Bill's early years? Yep. Uh, His dad was a boundary rider, a fist fighter and a Presbyterian preacher. His mum was a Wiradjuri woman and uh, they were married by the Reverend John Gribble, can you believe, that we talked about last time. (laughs) And the interesting thing, they kept their wedding certificate right at their front door. So in those days, before 1900, they wanted to make a declaration we are married. You know, that wasn't just a shack up. They were really married and they, they built a family in a home next door to Warren Gester and Bill went, their young Bill went to the Warren Gester Mission School briefly. Uh, but when his mum died, he went on the, on the road with his dad shearing at 14 years old. And so when did he start to become fired up about Aboriginal rights and start to take action about that? Well, it grew out of the union movement. The union movement was just beginning when he and his dad hit the sheds. There were Christian men in in the leadership of the union movement uh, and he and his dad was a sort of a Presbyterian travelling preacher. So he had this mix of socialist sort of activism, not only just on behalf of the Aboriginal people but all the men in the shed, irrespective of what colour they were. So that's how it grew. But as he travelled, he began to see the very, very poor treatment of his fellow Aboriginal workers and he began to get upset and fiery and angry about the way they were being treated. 
And so by the time he got to Dubbo in 1924 with his family, he was starting to really burn with, we've got to do something about this. And so when did he found the Aboriginal Progressive Association? Well, it wasn't until a bit later in 1937. Uh, He was a very methodical researcher. He'd learned from the union movement, you need to have evidence. If you're going to put your case to government, you've got to really do your homework. So he had quite an extended team right through the Western region who were gathering evidence for him because he knew he had to have substantial evidence. So by 1937, he thought, I've got enough of a case here to present. And he found an ally and a friend in the member for Burke uh, and Cobart, a guy called Mark Davidson, a Catholic uh, Labor Party member. And uh, he got them the first uh, select committee of inquiry in 1937. So there was sort of a a teaming up of those two men. And then in 1938, we had the day of mourning protests on Australia Day, which Bill was a real force behind. Can you tell us about that? Ferguson's evidence began to weigh heavily and less and less of the supposed committee were turning up to a point where it looked like none of them were going to come except for Mark Davidson, who was the chairman. So there came a day in um, in 1937, towards the end of that inquiry, early 1938, when none of, them, none of them turned up. So Ferguson heard this was happening, so did Davidson. So they stacked the gallery with observers <laughs> There's this empty benches of the committee and here's all these observers and the press were there and they gave it a big hit. So he scored. He knew how to score political points. I mean, he was a, he was a domain speaker as well. So he got angry about this fact that they didn't bother to turn up and that led him to go and talk to William Cooper in Melbourne and those two men together decided we need to start this day of mourning in, uh, in, on Australia Day in 1938, which was the sesquicentenary of the, the arrival of the, first, the, of the first fleet in Australia. And so, 150 years, is that what you're saying with that big long word? <laughs> well, what really got up his nose was the fact that they imported some Indigenous people from Manindi, chucked them in, and they were supposed to run down the beach at the reenactment in Botany Bay, throw a few spears, and then they stuck them in a truck and drove them home. And he felt that, that was a very dismissive way to treat his people. So that really burred them up. That's why they went into the street on the same day of the big parade. And there's a famous photograph of this little group of people standing there, mostly Aboriginal people. Although some church leaders stood with them and some feminists and others communists, I think. That's quite a motley crew, but that was, they say, was the first identifiable moment when uh, the civil rights movement launched in a public sense, and that's where the platform for civil rights began. And it's interesting too, Katrina, when you think about these men, Cooper and Ferguson, they had very few resources, they had long distances, the people, uh, the Aboriginal people were scattered, they were living on the fringes, so it's very hard to start a popular movement compared, say, with Martin Luther King in America. Yeah, we had churches and, and television and all that could build a big movement, but they had very scattered resources. So how influential would you say Bill Ferguson and this Aboriginal Progressive Association were in the Australian civil rights movement? Well, there were little pockets of them around, but they were one of the main spokespeople and they very quickly they got a hearing from uh, in federal government very shortly afterwards. They, uh, Prime Minister Lyons gave them a hearing. And they presented their case and basically it was based on their Christian background. They're all Christian men. And they said, you know, the Bible says we're all God's children. Why aren't we being treated as such? That was the the basis of their appeal. And they were just asking for the same rights as everybody else. And in their own country, they said, well, we're not animals. We're 
we're people. We feel things just like you. Please, and that was very courteously worded. They weren't sort of being aggressive. They were being sort of strong, but saying, you know, fair go, really. Did Bill see any of his work come to fruition? Well, both he and William Cooper died disillusioned, really. William Cooper died early in the war. The churches did, in fact, give them the first public platform for for giving their case, and they declared Aboriginal Sunday in 1941. And by that stage, Mark Davidson, the man who got them to the hearing, he'd actually gone on Hansard saying in Parliament, I think we're treating the Aboriginal people like Hitler is treating the Jews, which was a very brave speech to make on the edge of the war. So they had Aboriginal Sunday, uh, and so it looked like the churches, at least some of them, were going to stand with them and give them a platform. But And gradually the churches faded from the scene, and sadly I think they missed a great opportunity to be strong allies and brothers to the Aboriginal people, and gradually Aboriginal Sunday morphed into NADOC week and became more secularised and and political. So you were there when the statue of Bill Ferguson um, was opened in Dubbo in May 2019. What was the feeling there and and what do you think, what does it mean to you having that statue in Dubbo? That's a good question because uh, it's located, the statue is located very close to where Bill Ferguson collapsed on the platform when he was giving his last speech and he was saying the Aboriginals still live under laws that were made for controlling criminals he collapsed on the platform and died a few weeks later. And uh, his son, uh, son Duncan, told a friend of mine, Frank, when his dad was on his deathbed, he said, you know, Duncan, I think this is going to really help the Aboriginal people for it is if they come to faith in God. That was his last, one of his last statements. In Dubbo, I think it, it was it, it was a very powerful thing to have that statue right in, I don't know, many towns have a, a, a statue of an Aboriginal leader in their main square. And for the Aboriginal people, you'll see them there quite often around the precinct in that area. They like being down around the statue. You know, he was a man of force, a man of courage. Um, somebody described him as standing tall and strong and calm, strong in his in his Presbyterian faith that strengthened his love for his people. And that's a good description of him. In Australia, we've neglected him, you know, and the Christian world has neglected him too. And I think it's time his story was told as strongly as we can. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing it with us today, Paul. That is the Outback historian, Dr Paul Rowe. We've been talking about the civil rights activist Bill Ferguson. You can find Paul Rowe online and find out more about Bill Ferguson too at theoutbackhistorian.com.au. Thanks for listening to Episode 2 of Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. In Episode 3, we'll meet two smart and courageous women known as the Angels of Augustus. And these girls are just one small example of two women who went to a very lonely place. Um, I think Ethel went on to live up at Hungerford, which is a very tiny town right up on the on the. Um, Queensland border and she stayed there for another 10, 15 years or more and and I think, well who does that? Like who gives themselves utterly to a very remote area to serve like that? It's quite remarkable and I that's why I want to pay tribute to women like this. Marjorie Wilkinson and Ethel Hellyer headed to the bush to care for the scattered people of northwest New South Wales. We'll hear their story in episode three of Australia's Invisible History. I hope you'll join us. 
Hey, if you've enjoyed this episode of Australia's Invisible Histories, please do share and subscribe so we can keep on telling the stories. Plus, you can find more details and useful links in our show notes. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.